0: Good evening, uh, my story starts way back in history, back in the summer of 1968. I'm about one year out of the army at that point. I'm working for a company called Atlantic Richfield, ARCO, and I'm working in Midland, Texas as a young petroleum engineer. About August of 1968, I read in the oil and gas journal about my company's drilling two wells on the north slope of Alaska and finding oil seven miles apart, couple hundred feet thick. And as a bright young lad, I do the calculation real quick and realize we're talking about billions of barrels. And I certainly want to be part of what happens in Alaska. So uh, being enterprising, I start wearing my red parka to the office in Midland, Texas (laughs) in August. Fortunately, in a couple of weeks, they take mercy on me. The vice president of engineering calls me up and he says, Heinz, enough with the parka. Um, we got the message. We'll get you to Alaska as soon as we can. So I promoted myself to Alaska. Um, <laughs> I arrived here in uh, February 1969. Of course, no homes were built on spec back then, so it took quite a while to look at all seven houses. Finally was able to buy one by a miracle, uh, planted the lawn, and then, of course, the company realized that my talents were needed in Dallas, Texas, so I left my wife to, to cut the lawn while I went worked on the lease sale that was occurring in the September of 1969. That lease sale brought in $900 million to the state of Alaska. And again, back in those days, the budget had been in the range of a few million to maybe a few tens of millions of dollars. So $900 million was more money than anybody could even conceive of. And it was a lot of money, but it was gone in two years. And that's the start, basically, of the movement for the permanent fund, and one of the reasons you have the permanent fund today. In the summer of 1969, there was also a very bad event that occurred that was called the Santa Barbara oil spill. It led to the National Environmental Policy Act and uh, invented the term of the uh, environmental impact statement, EIS. And for several years, the construction of the pipeline and the production facilities on the North Slope was shut down. And then finally, in 1973, partially because of the Arab oil embargo, things started to move a little bit and actually, in January of uh, going on January of, of uh, 1974, um, a guy by the name of Vice President Spiro T. Agnew cast the deciding vote, and we got to build the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. Now everything was going along fine in 75 and 76. Sea lifts made it in. There were huge production facilities showing up. People were welding pipe. There was probably 10,000 people working down in Valdez alone and a tremendous amount of activity here in the state. It was all coming together towards the target of being ready to produce the summer of 1977. About the end of 1976, it became clear that there was one issue left that maybe had not been fully addressed, which was how were we going to start this whole thing. Here was an oil field we had built to handle 1.2 million barrels a day initially, and we had to basically coal start it and get it up to speed. So just think of of maybe like trying to start 100 cars all at once so that you could start the next 1,000 cars so you could start the next 10,000 cars, okay? A whole sequence of events that had to happen. And again, you all know enough about oil production to know that putting oil into something or natural gas into something and still having air in that also could be very explosive. And that's not something you want to do. So you had to figure out a way to kind of get that out. And also these production facilities had been very carefully designed, designed, well-designed, well-built, but they were designed to operate at temperatures of about 140 degrees and under considerable pressure, maybe even up to a couple thousand pounds. So everybody kind of looked around at first for the easy button, and there was no easy button built into this. So a whole bunch of people working together on the ARCO side, what we figured out was we had to figure out a way to get forward flow, in other words, get oil actually moving through the facility. replacing it with new oil every day as we kind of brought it up. So, again, sounds simple, except there was no tankage. There was nothing on the North Slope to work with that would allow us to do that. And finally, somebody realized that we did have a small refinery on the North Slope, been there many years. It handled about 2,000 barrels a day. So the decision was made to run oil through one of the facilities, run it on over into this refinery, and that would allow us to produce 2,000 barrels a day. Again, to get started, one 300,000 barrel a day facility. Well, it seemed to work. So immediately people put in a jumper, and they ran the oil through a pipeline over to the next production facility. They ran it through there, they warmed it up, got it going. They ran it back to the third production facility, and had the oil circulating. At the same time, we had gas circulating to the central gas plant and everything else. And so we were able to actually get the fuel running with that very minuscule refinery as the starting point. And so when the actual day came to start filling taps, we were able to do it very quickly and fairly easily because we had warmed up everything. And of course, once things started down the taps pipeline, then there were crews that actually walked the crude oil all the way to Valdez the 800 miles uh, at about you know a little 4 miles per hour or something like that so the the achievement there of getting everything running and getting it all up getting it started realizing there were horrible consequences if when we had hit the green button it had gone you know and just died right there that there were financial and a lot of other crises that would result for everybody. So it was through that experience that I learned the old Alaskan adage, the impossible just takes a little longer.